0: This morning, I'd invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 14. Last week, we made it to verse 23, and so this week, we'll pick up in verse 24. In those first 23 verses, we saw the astounding feat by Jonathan, the son of King Saul. He was not content to sit and wait, and so he and his armor-bearer, sneak out of his father's camp. They climbed down Mount Slippery and then up Mount Thorny where just the two of them attack a stronghold held by their enemies. Twenty Philistine soldiers fall and then the Lord scatters the remaining tens of thousands by causing the earth to shake and placing fear and confusion in their minds. That's where we left off. With the enemy on the run, the strong place taken, reinforcements on their way. That's where we left them. But oh, if it could have stayed that way. I'm sure most of you have heard the phrase, snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. Well, in this passage, we're going to see the exact opposite we'll see the king snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. And it's sad to say of a king, but all he had to do was stay out of the way. Just just stay out of the way. Do nothing. Go sit in your tent. Take a long nap. If that had happened, it's likely the threat of the Philistines would have been destroyed ...forever, and God's people would have had peace from them. But Saul just can't help himself. You've probably seen the old slapstick comedy... ...where someone is walking around and they step on the teeth of a rake... ...and then the wooden handle comes flying up and hits them in the face... ...and then they stumble only to step on another rake... ...and then that stick comes up and hits them in the face... And then they somehow manage to step on every rake near them. That's King Saul in this passage. Snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Stumbling around, stepping on rake after rake. What's causing this? I think there's an easy answer. Saul has found religion. He finally decides to get religious, and he does some stupid things. We got a preview of what's coming last week, when Saul impulsively called for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought to the battle. I don't believe it ever came. But this king, whose dynasty had been ended, who'd been left by Samuel, the Lord's prophet, He spontaneously calls for the ark to be brought to him, apparently forgetting the national disaster that took place the last time the ark was brought into battle against the will of the Lord. Samuel leaving has caused Saul to find religion. And before you get too hopeful, we need to think about his motives. Why is Saul becoming hyper-religious? We'll see this in the text. He's becoming hyper-religious to use religion as a means of holding on to his kingship. He fears that his kingship is slipping from his grasp. And so he uses religion to try to stabilize it. And he does some incredibly stupid things. Kids, did you know that adults can do some very dumb things... In the name of religion. Adults can do some very dumb things in the name of religion. They may say they're honoring God. They may say they're only being faithful to the Bible. And then they go and do things that are just stupid. You see this, again, when religion becomes the way of getting what you want... There's something that you want, and so you act religious. You do religious things in order to get it. That's what Saul is doing. And when you do that, you're bound to do something stupid. And, as we'll see, you inevitably break the actual commands of God or cause someone else to break the commands of God. I mean, think of parents. What some parents want most is for their children to grow up and be moral, well-behaved, successful people. And they use religion to accomplish that. And they wind up doing stupid things and can actually push their children to break the commandments of God. What some people want most is to live comfortably in a country that is in line with their views and their politics, and so they use religion they do stupid things and push others to break the commands of God. We have a very helpful lesson in today's text, and it's this. When your relationship with God is just based on getting what you want, you will end up acting like Saul and doing some very dumb things. I was listening to Dr. Derek Thomas preach this text, and he was making this point and and then made the statement. He said, unless your life is built on the foundation of grace, you will make silly, foolish decisions when it comes to religion. Unless your life is built upon the foundation of grace, you will make silly, foolish decisions when it comes to religion. That's what we'll see in this lengthy text. King Saul, all of a sudden, become, he comes, becomes very religious in hopes of holding on to his kingship and experiencing success and gaining the admiration and credibility of his soldiers. But the exact opposite happens. And it should be a lesson and warning to us all that unless our lives are built upon the foundation of divine grace, we will make (coughs) foolish, silly decisions when it comes to religion. Let's pray and then read our text. Almighty God, we do thank you for your word. We can look at this world and clearly see and perceive that there is a God but you have made yourself known through your word and through your Son, specially. You have showed us the way of life and given us your word that is not merely an ancient history and collection of writings, but the very alive and living word. So as we sit under its ministry this morning, would you work through it by your spirit and bless your people? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at our text, 1 Samuel 14, beginning in verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now, when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better If the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon. And the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul... Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. And the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, Why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Uram. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey. With the tip of the staff that was in my hand, here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die? Who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. All right, let's look at the dumb things that Saul does in this passage. Verse 24 begins by saying, And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. Let's just stop and ask, What? Why are they hard-pressed? You look back one verse where we left off last week, verse 23, and you see, So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. The Lord saved Israel. He caused the earth to shake. He routed Israel's enemies. He threw them into confusion. The Philistines were running around like chickens with their heads cut off. So why, in the next verse, does it say the men of Israel were hard-pressed that day? Well, they're hard-pressed because of a dumb thing that their king does. Other English translations will insert the word because here in place of so, and I, I like that translation. Why are the men hard-pressed? Verse 24, Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies, so none of the people had tasted food. (laughs) The men of Israel are hard-pressed because they are not allowed to ingest a single calorie that day. Their king said, Cursed be the man who eats food, and yet... He expects his troops to pursue their enemies all day in order to avenge him. In verse 31, that we're told that they pursue the fleeing Philistines from Michmash to Ajalon, which is some 20 miles over some very tough terrain. And they have to do all that on empty stomachs. And what happens is no surprise. Verse 31, and the people were very faint who would have guessed last May Molly and I did an event in Memphis at Shelby Farms it was a 20 mile hike and we wanted to push ourselves so we would jog hike we'd hike for a little bit and then jog for a little bit and just go back and forth and uh, the event planners every five or six miles had nutrition stops tables with bananas and cookies and energy gels and energy drinks and Gatorade and water. They had everything because they understood that the participants are going to be expending a lot of energy, so they need to be fueled. Saul didn't allow that for his men. He commanded them to fast, to not eat a morsel of food until he is avenged on his enemies. Do you notice the difference in the way Jonathan and Saul speak? Jonathan said back in verse 6, It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. But then listen to his father. Cursed be the man who eats until I am avenged on my enemies. It's all about Saul and his revenge. And so he uses religion. He forces a fast. He binds the conscience of his men. Meaning, God hadn't called these men to fast. Saul did. He placed a heavy burden upon them, hoping that this religious action would get him what he wanted. And the result was that despite the Lord's great salvation the men were hard-pressed. In verse 25, we're shown a a scene that takes place that day. The soldiers are passing through a forest. Jonathan is with them, doing his thing, being a, a leader of leaders, being a captain of men. And in the forest, we're told that there were so many beehives that the honey is pooling on the ground. It is dripping out of the honeycomb and collecting in puddles. And Jonathan has been going all day. He's already done those two strenuous climbs, already struck down 20 men. Now he's with the soldiers chasing the Philistines. And he sees this natural nutrition stop. This blessing from God. Loads of honey and sugar to revive his energy. And so he takes his staff, Stuck it in the honey, brings it to his mouth, and eats. And his energy is revived. His eyes become bright. Some of you know what that's like. You hit mid-afternoon, and you have a Twix. <laughs> and your eyes become bright. First thing in the morning, you get out of bed and go over and get that coffee. And your eyes become Right. That's what happens to Jonathan. He is fueled up, ready to go, but he's the only one eating. Because, you know, remember, he wasn't there when his father gave this command. When his father made this vow, do not eat, Jonathan was not there. He was already gone, already chasing the Philistines. And so the men with him don't touch the honey because of what Saul had done, and they were very faint. Their eyes were not bright. And then in verse 28, there's this insufferable, annoying guy who comes up to Jonathan. I add, Maybe he wasn't. I added that, insufferable and annoying, but I think he had to be. I think we've met people like this before. The one guy who comes up to Jonathan after he eats. Jonathan is the hero of this chapter, and this guy comes up to him after eating the honey and says, Your father strictly charged the people not to eat food this day. You broke the rules. You're supposed to be hungry and miserable like the rest of us. There's always one, isn't there? The majority of the soldiers said nothing. I'm not saying anything to Jonathan. He, he, he's the one who started this. He emptied the camp. Everything we're doing is because of him. I'm not not saying anything to Jonathan. But this one guy confronts Jonathan in regards to this dumb rule Saul imposed on his men. And look how Jonathan responds in verse 29. Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. That's a bold statement. My father has troubled the land. You know where that said Previously in Scripture, it's said about a man named Achan back in Joshua chapter 7. Bill will get there in a few weeks, or maybe seven weeks. He's, he's going to get there, and you'll, you'll see this, that after Jericho was destroyed, God charged the soldiers not to take anything. Like, leave it. Leave it all. But Achan saw some things in the wreckage he wanted. We're told that he saw, he coveted, he took. And because of Achan's sin, bad things started happening to Israel. They started losing battles. He brought trouble on his people. That's the language that Jonathan is using about his father. And then he explains it. He says that defeat of our enemies could have been great, but it won't be because everyone's famished. Saul's, my father's stupid command, has kept us from winning a great victory today. You know, I mentioned earlier that when we make up commandments and require people under our authority to, to do things that God does not require, what inevitably happens is that our commands will cause them and us to break God's commands. And that happens in verse 32. Look there. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. So evening finally comes. The soldiers are finally able to eat. And they come across sheep and oxen and calves that belong to the Philistines. And they're looking at them and they're so hungry. All they see are walking lamb chops and ribeyes and tenderloins. And so they slaughter the animals, quickly butcher them, and maybe they eat them raw. I don't know. Maybe they just butchered them and eat them raw. Maybe they just butchered them quickly and then cooked them over a fire. But they quickly satiate their hunger. And there's an issue here. The issue is that they didn't butcher them properly. They ate with the blood. They did not drain the blood From these animals. They violated command of God given back in Leviticus 17 and Leviticus 19. You don't have to turn there, but just hear and understand that in Old Testament Israel, it was the blood of animals that atoned for sin. It was the blood of animals that was dripped or sprinkled on the mercy seat on top of the ark. And the people's sins were forgiven. So blood was sacred. It represented life. And so God required his people to butcher animals in a particular way to drain all the blood. Now we know this is no longer the case for us. This commandment of God has been fulfilled once and for all in the sacrifice of Christ. But these men break this command. They pounce on the animals. You know, after Molly and I finished that 20-mile hike, we went to five guys and got double cheeseburgers and a bag of Cajun fries, and we inhaled that meal. It was in front of us one minute and gone the next. That's what happened. The men devoured this meal, blood and all. They broke the command of God. They held the command of their king but doing so has caused them to break the command of God. You know, Jesus says these exact words in Mark 7 when he's speaking with the Pharisees, and he charges them with leaving the commandments of God and holding to the traditions of men. Saul's practice of religion has done that. It's caused his men to sin. But don't worry, everyone. He's going to take care of it. This eating of the blood is reported back to Saul. There's no word of Jonathan's eating honey yet. But Saul hears of this, and he's going to make it right. He says, let me show you how this is supposed to be done. Bring me a large stone. Bring me some animals. This is how you do it, people. And Saul demonstrates how they're to butcher an animal and keep it kosher. And then we're told he builds an altar. We're told in verse 35, it was the first altar he'd built. Remember, he's he's getting religious. Now, what is Saul doing? He's acting like their priest. He's scolding the men under his authority. He's calling them treacherous. He's calling them sinners. He's being condescending. But what does Saul not do? He does not take responsibility as their leader and admit that his rash vow was the cause of this. He does not admit that his binding of their consciences led to this. There's none of that here. Again, think of his motives. He wants to do the right religious things, jump through the proper hoops so that he'll get what he's really after. And so Saul has all his ducks in a row, and then he's on to the next thing, verse 36. Let us go down to the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. All right, now that you know how to butcher things properly, now that you've got some food on your belly, boys, let's go. Let's go get them and their stuff. And the boys aren't all that excited. You look at what they say, do whatever seems good to you. Those are not the words a king wants to hear from his soldiers. What a king would want to hear is what the armor bearer said to Jonathan back in verse 8. I am with you, heart and soul. The armor bearer would have stormed the gates of hell with Jonathan. But Saul's men are saying, here we go again. And then there's a priest who also says something. We talked about him briefly last week, but the priest steps in and says, Saul, let us draw near to God. The priest is saying, King, why don't we stop and pray about this? You know, it's a humbling thing when you're a pastor and you should always be quick to pray and then your wife or someone else says, we should pray about this. That's what the priest does. And so Saul does. Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? And what happens? Nothing. The Lord did not answer him that day. So Saul starts to, to fume, his mind starts to, to go, and he thinks there has to be a reason for this. Someone has done something, and that's what's keeping the Lord from answering our prayer. It, it can't be me. Someone has betrayed us, someone has secretly sinned, we have an Achan in the camp, and we need to find out who he is, and we need to execute him and restore the Lord's favor. That was Saul's reaction to his unanswered prayer. And how is he going to figure this out? Well, he's going to use the Urim and the Thummim. Now, there's not a whole lot we know about the Urim and the Thummim. They were in the possession of the high priest. They were lots that were cast that would say yes, no, or no answer. I mean if you if you'll think of just the very basic <laughs> illustration I mean, you probably had a magic eight ball as a kid, and you get asked questions. Well, that's what they're doing here to an extent. They're casting lots, and they're, they want to get yes, no, or no answer. This is how they're going to identify the culprit. Lord, who sinned? Who is keeping you from speaking to us and telling us we can go raid the Philistines and take their stuff? And so all does. He puts all of his soldiers on one side and then he puts himself and his son on the other side. We've got the soldiers and the royals. You've got to think the soldiers hated this. Like Here we go again. The, the army grunts taken all the blame. And so Saul splits them up and the lots are cast and the soldiers are quickly surprised and relieved because the lot falls on Saul and Jonathan's side. They're the ones who are guilty. Well, Saul can't have that. Again, he can't possibly take any responsibility. He hasn't done anything. So we got to do this again. Jonathan, this time I'm going to go over here, and you stay here, and we're going to do this again. And so he casts the lot again, and the lot falls on Jonathan. Well, before we get to Jonathan's answer, I just want to ask, what's going on here? Maybe the Lord was speaking through the lot, falling on Jonathan. He had unknowingly broken his father's vow by eating the honey. And our God takes vows not lightly. So perhaps the Lord was pointing a finger at Jonathan. But I think there's another option that I would probably lean more towards. Remember, what Saul is doing this entire passage, it's shallow hollow, meaningless religion devoid of any power of God. And so maybe these casting of lots, maybe it wasn't a flashing arrow pointing guilt at Jonathan. Maybe it was just empty, hollow religion. I mean, think about the story. On one side you have Jonathan, the hero of the chapter, who made that incredible statement back in verse 6, The Lord can save by many or by few. The young man who puts himself forward as an instrument in the Lord's hands. The young man who is beloved by his men. And then on the other side, you have a fool who keeps stepping on rakes. A man whose own son says of him, he is troubling the land. A man who caused his men to sin against the Lord and has taken no responsibility. Who's the guilty one here? I mean, maybe it was God pointing out Jonathan's eating of the honey and breaking this vow. Or maybe Saul just continued to be engaged in vain, empty, hollow religious action, totally void of the power of God. (coughs) So Jonathan's identified as the guilty party before the group. What does he say? I tasted a little honey. Here I am. I will die. He's not denying what he did. He's not making excuses. He's not casting blame. If the punishment for this is death, then so be it. And Saul is fully willing to throw Jonathan under the bus to kill his son for unknowingly breaking his father's dumb command. Saul is going to kill his son. Until the soldiers rise up and say, no way. Jonathan is the one who worked this great salvation for us. He's the one who has worked with God this day. Saul, you've been trying to work with God all day through your fasting and proper butchering and casting of lots. But God has not worked with you. He's worked with Jonathan. So not a hair shall fall from Jonathan's head or else there's going to be problems. Jonathan's men rise up and say, no, O king, Jonathan will not be touched. And Jonathan lives. And what else happens? Saul's credibility before the men is totally shot. No one respects this guy. No one is going to listen to this guy. He's proved himself to be a fool and the conclusion of his pursuit of religion is wanting to kill the very man who'd won the victory for them in the first place. His credibility is shot. Oh, and look at verse 46 the Philistines got away. That also happened. Because of Stahl's stupidity, because of his delay, because of his getting in the way, the enemies of God escaped. Somehow he managed to snatch. Defeat out of the jaws of victory. Now, two quick things before we're done. Think about Jonathan. Again, all this began with him in verse 1. He and his armor-bearer climbed the rock and stormed the camp. He was out in the forest with his men, pursuing the enemy. He was then abandoned by his father and heard his father threaten his death only to be saved by his men. We talked about this last week, how Jonathan would have made a great king, a much better king than his father, but he'll never be king because of the sin of his father. When we look at Jonathan, what, are, what often are we tempted to say, it's not fair. Jonathan was a good guy, He should be successful. He should be king. He doesn't deserve this. And yet we learn something from Jonathan. He stood before that crowd and said, this is what I did. Here I am. I will die. He didn't make excuses. He trusted the Lord. And he was willing to die if that be the Lord's will. Jonathan could have sang the hymn that will end with in just a moment whatever my God ordains is right his holy will abideth I will be still whatever he does and follow where he guideth he is my God though dark my road he holds me that I shall not fall and so to him I leave it all we can learn something from Jonathan and his trust in life and in death that he belonged to the sovereign Lord. Second and finally, where is Christ in this text? I, I do not want to send you from this place only showing you a fool discovering religion and then doing stupid things and then his faithful son who saved from death because of some soldiers who loved him. I, I, I need to hold up Christ before you before I end this sermon and send you on your way. So where is he? And you know, I hope that in seeing the stupidity of King Saul, it makes you long for a better king. I mean, surely Jonathan and the other men felt that. The longing for a better king, a wiser king, a king that was in close communion with God. A king with pure motives. And the good news of the gospel is that God has sent such a king. A king who succeeded where Saul failed. A king who is everything Saul isn't. A king who would lay down his life and die so that his sinful people would be saved and have communion with God restored forever. God has sent such a king, and his name is Jesus. And the failures of Saul only point us to him. I was listening to another sermon on this text. I listened to Alistair Begg, and he asked the question, how do you find Jesus in this passage? Well, it's the very absence of him that makes us think about him and look for him. It's his absence that makes us think about and look for Jesus. When you think about darkness, what is darkness? Darkness is the absence of light. This is a dark passage. It's a Christless passage. A passage where a king uses religion as a means of getting what he wants And then he does stupid things, and then he leads his men to sin. And like Alistair said, the absence of Christ makes us look for him. The darkness makes us think of and long for the light. We read this passage, and what's absent is a king who doesn't cast guilt on his people, but takes the guilt of his people upon himself. A king who on the cross would have the finger of divine judgment pointed at him, not us. A king who would die so that the great enemy would be defeated. The enemy doesn't escape and get away here. You know, I pray that in his absence, here and elsewhere, we would be caused to recognize the darkness and long for the light and put all our trust in him who is the light of the world. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for how it teaches and instructs us. And we thank you that in the absence of Christ, we yet behold him, Lord, I do ask that our eyes would be lifted up to him and that we would trust in him. That we wouldn't just leave this place with some moral lessons that we're going to try out in our lives. To self-improve ourselves. But Lord, would we look to your son, the king who is nothing like Saul. And in looking to him, would we be transformed more and more. In his glory. Ask in Jesus' name. Amen.